Happy Easter Eve, everybody. Oh, it's, you're very rowdy tonight. There's Easter in the air, I can tell. It's wonderful to see you. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And uh, I know that a lot of you are here tonight because we, we begged you to come tonight because you being here tonight means that we get to make room for a lot of new people who will probably be showing up for the first time tomorrow morning. And so just uh, from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of our staff, we are so grateful that you are willing to be inconvenienced on what I know is a very sacred and special time in order that a lot of people could hear the good news of Easter for the first time or the first time in a really long time tomorrow morning. And so again, from the bottom of my heart and from our leadership, we are so grateful that you are willing to come tonight. And if you're here tonight and it's like your first time at church in a long time, man, you picked a very good day to come. You picked a good one. Uh, it is sadly fashionable in some church circles to kind of take a jab at people who, who show up at church on Easter for like the first time or first time in a long time. Have you ever heard any of these terrible jokes? Pastors will get up here and they'll be like, hey, just so you know, we do have church the other 51 Sundays of the year. Ha, 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 ha. These terrible jokes. And my opinion is so stupid and condescending because, again, in my experience, it takes so much humility and courage to show up on Easter when showing up is not the norm for you. All right? And so if, if you're here and you're showing up for the first time, the first time in a long time, we are so glad that you came. We want to affirm you in that because we all know that you might have had a lot of really good reasons for not showing up. You know, maybe you've been walking around with a lot of anxiety, anger, apathy, busyness. Man, we have all been there. We're all there from time to time. And yet, here we all are. We've all shown up together on Easter Eve because 2,000 years ago, God showed up in a very unexpected way and things have never been the same. Now, by way of a brief recap, if you weren't here on Friday for our Good Friday services, last we saw Jesus, he had been crucified by the powers that be and then stuffed in an empty tomb. So we'll pick up the story there, Matthew 27, verse 62. It'll also be on the screen for you if you would like. We'll read into chapter 28 a little bit. So starting at verse 62. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and they said, sir, we remember that when Jesus was still alive, that deceiver said after three days, I'm to rise again. Therefore, we want you to give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away. And then they'll say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. Very ironic little phrase there. And they went and they made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone. And he sat on it. I don't know why he sat on it. I've always liked that detail. He sits on the stone. And his appearance was like lightning. You ever seen lightning before? That's what this angel looks like, apparently. And his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him, and they became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who has been crucified, but he ain't here. He is risen, just like he said he would come see the place where he was lying. Now go quickly, and you tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going on ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. 
And they ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and he greeted them. And they came up and they took hold of Jesus' feet. They worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, same thing, do not be afraid. I mentioned a few weeks ago, the most common command in the Bible, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brothers and sisters to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came to the city and they reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. They said to him, hey, here's what you're going to say. His disciples came by night and they stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and we'll keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So the resurrection. The resurrection is one story, but we get four different versions of this same basic story with each of the four gospel writers, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John telling the same basic story, but also telling it in some different ways. Ways. So, for example, in Matthew, what we just read, there are two women who go to the tomb on Easter morning. In Mark, there are three women. In Luke, it's tough to tell, but it looks like it's probably more than three women. In John, it's one woman. In Luke and John, Peter runs back to the empty tomb to see for himself. Remember that part? He makes sure that the writer tells us that he was faster than John. This is a great detail in the story. Matthew and Luke, they don't say anything about Peter running back. In Matthew and John, Jesus actually shows up and appears to the women like we just read. But those two stories are very different. And then Mark and Luke don't say anything about Jesus appearing to the women. And Matthew, the angel who has rolled the stone away, is sitting on the stone outside the tomb. And Mark, he is sitting inside the tomb. The list goes on and on and on here. And some people are very bothered by these differences in the resurrection stories. Now, among Christians of a shall we say, more, more dogmatic bent. We find these well-meaning but very misguided attempts to explain all of these differences away through what I like to call explanatory gymnastics. Have you ever seen anybody do explanatory gymnastics? Just bending over backwards trying to make something make sense. It's like if you've ever seen a grown man do the splits and you're like, we don't, there's no need for this. There's never a need for a grown man to do the splits. It's very painful to see and yet people will do these with the resurrection stories. It's like, oh, well, first... You know, the women went, and then Peter, he came back, and then he gave somebody a piggyback ride, and then Jesus appeared, but he kind of appeared, but it was a rod, da-da-da-da, just on. It's very painful to listen to these explanations. And then uh, it's all an attempt, you know, to, to smooth the resurrection story out and rid it of any tension, because we can't have any tension. And then conversely, some people are very bothered by these differences we have in the resurrection stories but instead of trying to explain them away they feel that these differences obviously prove that the resurrection story is you know it's a lie it's a myth it's a clever fabrication of the earliest christians because if christianity can't get its details straight on its most important event then why in the world would we believe that this event has happened especially when this event is i think we can all agree the most astonishing event that has ever been claimed to have occurred, right? And I'm assuming you just grew up hearing the story your whole life. So you're like, yeah, the resurrection. No, y'all, this is a crazy story. It's a very crazy story. Like when I was in grad school, I went and listened to this lecture by a guy in a grad school class who claimed that he had seen Bigfoot. Multiple times, in fact, multiple times he had seen Bigfoot. And where had he seen Bigfoot? Well, not in the heights of 
the Himalayan mountains, nor in the remote wilderness of the Pacific Northwest. No, this man claimed that he regularly saw Bigfoot in the piney woods surrounding College Station, Texas. <laughs> now, if you've ever been to College Station, then you know why this part of the story actually made a lot of sense to me, okay? I, I walked in skeptical, but then he said College Station. I went, hmm. I've seen some things in College Station. Well, this is, I'm all ears now. But then the best part of this guy's story was that not only did he claim that he had seen Bigfoot multiple times in the piney woods surrounding College Station, Texas, but he also claimed that he had the ability, I swear this is a true story, he had the ability to conjure Bigfoot up out of thin air and just make him appear. And so you know what happened in the Q&A at the end of the lecture, right? What would you have done? Some guy tells you, hey, I can conjure up Bigfoot. What question are you asking? Some guy asked him, hey, Regent, could you conjure up Bigfoot? And this guy's response is one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my entire life. He looks dead in the eyes of this smarmy little college freshman who has just challenged him to conjure up Bigfoot. And he says to him, you idiot. Do you have any idea how much trouble I would get in if I conjured up Bigfoot in the middle of a college classroom? Do you have any idea the carnage that would unfold if I conjured up Sasquatch in a college classroom? Are you that stupid, son? It was maybe the greatest moment of my entire life. To this day, it is the craziest story I've ever heard. But y'all, I gotta be honest, this is just the way my brain works. I have a very weird brain, but here I am up here talking and you're listening, so my brain just goes, isn't the story of the resurrection like a little bit crazier in some ways, right? Because I've seen some very human-like monkeys in my life. I have, all of them look like humans, and I've seen some very hairy men. So I don't know. I don't think I believe, but it could be. But I've never seen anybody or anything raised from the dead. You ever seen anybody or anything raised from the dead? I didn't think so. So all that to say, y'all, the story of the resurrection is an astonishing story. And it does not claim to be something that is easily and obviously believable. And so if you're here tonight, and you're like, I don't know, man, it's kind of out there. You are well within your rights. Like I told you last year on Easter, if some part of you doesn't find the resurrection story a little astonishing, then you probably haven't understood it. Now, all that said, the differences in these resurrection stories, they've never really bothered me that much. A lot of things bother me, but that one's never really bothered me. Because if the resurrection is a true story about the most astonishing event that has ever occurred, the resurrection of the Son of God is the first fruits of the resurrection and redemption of the entire universe. If the resurrection is a true story of that event, then it makes complete sense to me that those who experienced it were so blown away. They were so dumbfounded. They were so shocked, stupefied, and amazed that they walked away more than a little dazed and confused. Doesn't that make sense to you? That makes sense to me. In fact, the surest clue that the story of the resurrection was a fabrication would have been if everybody walked away telling the exact same story about it, right? Because everybody's walking away calm, cool, and collected. Then you can rest assured that the most astonishing event in the history of the world probably hasn't occurred, has it? I don't think so. I love the way N.T. Wright puts this. He's the foremost scholar of our age on the history of the resurrection. Here's what he says. He says, surface discrepancies do not mean that nothing happened. Indeed, they are a very reliable indicator that something remarkable happened. 
So remarkable that the first witnesses were bewildered into telling different stories about it. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that the differences in the resurrection stories prove that the resurrection happened. If y'all been around Vista long enough, you know you can't prove this. It's nothing you can prove. Well, they prove that something very remarkable happened. Then it's up to you and me to decide what that something remarkable was. And so now what I want to do is dig into the details of Matthew's version of the story a little bit more. So the people have crucified Jesus, right? These chief priests and Pilate, the political and religious establishment, they get together and realize they would probably be smart to try to guard and secure Jesus' tomb so his disciples don't sneak in, steal the body, and claim he's been raised from the dead. So that's the plan. Then early on Easter morning, the sun just beginning to warm up the horizon. These two women, the two Marys, Mary and Mary Magdalene, they go to Jesus' tomb. Timeline. It's a bit tricky to follow at this point, but what's clear is that by the time they get there, something wild has happened. There's there's an earthquake, there's an angel, stone gets rolled away, angel's sitting on top of the stone. And these poor guards, they are so afraid that we're told they become like dead men. And then the angel tells the women that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's gone to Galilee just like he said he would. You're here on time. Whoever it is, you made it on time. He's been raised from the dead, just like he said he would go to this mountain in Galilee in Matthew 26. So the women run away. They are filled with fear and great joy. I love that line. But then Jesus just poof. He just appears in front of them on their way, just like Bigfoot came for this man in College Station, allegedly, right? Jesus just appears. And he says to them what? Do not be afraid. There it is again, most common command in the Bible. Do not be afraid because whereas they had been filled with fear and great joy, Jesus wants to make it clear that he has put fear to death once and for all, which means our fear is now antiquated. I love the resurrection means that our fear is now antiquated. And whereas they were filled with fear and great joy, Jesus wants to make sure that now they are only filled with great joy. And then the story cuts back. Here's where it gets interesting. To the chief priest and these poor, puzzled guards. And you gotta feel bad for these guards, don't you? I know they're the bad guys, but I feel bad for them. Like I know some of you, have, you've worked some difficult jobs in your life. You've been given some tough assignments. I'm currently coaching my five-year-old son's t-ball team. It's a very difficult gig. I've seen things a grown man shouldn't have to see. You know what I mean? Before our first game, I walked up to the ump, I said, hey, my first time coaching t-ball i've coached other things but not t-ball do you have any advice for me he places a fatherly hand on my shoulder and he says to me it can be soul crushing (laughs) (laughs) he's right boy it's a tough gig but i think we can all agree that being assigned to secure and guard the tomb of the son of god this is even more difficult time these poor guys they don't stand a chance and so there they are can you imagine this they're trying to explain what happened to the chief priest And the chief priests, they go and they consult with some more important people with the elders. And then after this consultation of the important people, they come back with a proposal and a plan involving a large sum of money. So here's the proposal and the plan. They say to these guards, hey, if y'all will say that Jesus' disciples snuck in and stole the body while you were asleep. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense, though, does it? Like, because if you were asleep, then how good? They didn't have a lot of good options, though, people. Tough situation they were in. If you'll do that, then we will give you all of this money. And then we'll have your back if you get in trouble with your bosses. 
And then in one of the most consequential decisions that has ever been made, a decision that continues to be made throughout the course of history, a decision you and me are confronted with more than once in our lives, we're told in verse 15 that they took the money and they did as they had been instructed to do. So when I read Matthew's account of Easter morning, it always strikes me that the women and the guards, okay, these two groups of people, they experience the exact same event, don't they? Earthquake, angels, empty tomb. They experience the exact same event, but then they walk away from it telling completely contradictory stories about the exact same event. The women walk away telling a story about the resurrected Christ. These guards walk away telling a story about some sneaky disciples and abducted dead body. And so why? Why? And of course, this is a question with with scope that extends far beyond these guards and these women because it gets at one of the fundamental mysteries of Christian faith. Namely, why do some of us believe while others don't? comes up every Easter. Why do some of us believe while others don't? And before we get too meta and metaphorical and complicated about it all, let's just start with the simplest answer, okay? Why do the guards tell a story that they know is a lie? Why do they do that? Well, because they were incentivized to do so. Because they were given a whole lot of money to tell and then live a lie. I love how crass and direct verse 15 is. Let's read it again. And they took the money and they did as they had been instructed. And so why did the guards tell a lie? Why did these guards reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though they were there? Why did they reject the resurrection? Was it, was it because they had doubts? Was it because they needed more evidence? Was it because they just needed a little bit more faith? No, they rejected the resurrection because they took the money. That's what the text says. They had a choice between the resurrection and the money, and they took the money. It reminds me of something that I heard Paul say once, the Apostle Paul. One of those biblical sayings we've all heard, but sometimes the meaning of it just doesn't quite land on you. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Here's what Paul said. He says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Hmm. So according to Paul, people have wandered away from the faith. But not because they took freshman biology at a state university. And not because they they learned about some world religions. And not because they, they read Harry Potter. And not because they learned that the resurrection stories have a few differences. No, according to Paul, a lot of people wander away from the faith. Why? Because they love money. That's why. 
And boy, Paul's, Paul's perspective here has been painfully confirmed in the modern world, hasn't it? Like if you have a head that has not been completely buried in the sand for the last 50 or so years, then you have no doubt heard about this enormous rise in unbelief in the modern world. Right? That a lower percentage of people believe in God right now than at any point in the history of the world. Uh, this is just a fact. A lower percentage of people believe in God right now than at any point in the history of the world. And this is indisputably true. But it's also a little bit misleading because unbelief is not just skyrocketing all over the world. No, rather, do you know where unbelief is skyrocketing? In rich, affluent, prosperous cultures. Unbelief is not just rising. No, it is rising, skyrocketing in rich, affluent prosperous cultures like ours or to put it even a bit more bluntly poor people are much more likely to believe in God and act like it than rich people they are and why do you think that is? isn't that weird why do you think that is well you know how we prosperous people would like to answer it I'll, I'll answer for myself I'd be like well this can't be on the record right but uh well, it's because we're, we're better educated and we know about science and stuff. That's why. And I get it. But I think Jesus might see it a little bit differently, don't you? I think Jesus might say, man, I told you it was hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I told you that you can't serve God in money. You think I was playing with you? I wasn't playing with you. And that brings us back to our Easter story. Because one of the things that you notice when you zoom out just a little bit on the story is that basically everybody in the story who has some power and control rejects the good news of the resurrection. Everybody. Whereas basically everybody in the story who does not have any power or control receives the good news of the resurrection. Roman guards and Jewish religious leaders, powerful men, powerful men who ruled or who were in control, they reject the resurrection because they perceive that Jesus is a threat to their control and they don't want to be out of control and so they're not going to receive the resurrection. Meanwhile, these women, women who were second-class citizens in the ancient world who had so little power and control, they received the good news of the resurrection because Jesus is not a threat to their control because they already live lives that are out of control. And what is true of the Easter stories is actually true of the entirety of Jesus' life. People who were in control almost always rejected Jesus. Right, go, go through the Gospels this week and read them. People who were in control almost always rejected Jesus. You remember the first one, King Herod tries to kill Jesus when he's born. The rich young ruler walks away from him. The religious leaders oppose Jesus every step of the way and finally decide to murder him. Pontius Pilate, the most powerful person in Israel at the time and the representative of Caesar, who was the most powerful person on the planet, conspires together with the religious leaders in order to kill Jesus. But then the opposite is also true. People who were out of control were uniquely drawn to Jesus, weren't they? The deaf, lame, and the blind. Lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, sick people, grieving people, 
demon-possessed people, women, children. And this continued on in the life of the early church among the early Christians because the early church developed this very bad reputation of being a community that was disproportionately filled with, with duds and delinquents. That's what the early church was. It was a religion for women and slaves. That's what everybody said. Everybody who was anybody in the ancient world looked at the early church and thought it was a pathetic collection of stupid and unimportant people, a collection of out of control people. That's what all the ancient pagans thought about the early church. There's a bunch of losers over there. And of course, the accusations, y'all, these accusations, they were all true. The early church was disproportionately filled with women slaves and delinquents there's this ancient christian document called the didascalia dates all the way back to the third century and it's got this section in it with a bunch of rules guidelines for proper christian worship in the ancient church and there's this one rule in particular that said if worship was going on and a very important person walked in through the doors the bishop the pastor was forbidden from pausing worship in order to go greet him. But if worship was going on and in walked a poor person, a slave or a woman, the bishop was commanded to stop what he was doing and then do everything in his power to make sure that that person had a seat, even if it meant giving up his seat so that he had to sit on the floor. Isn't that awesome? You know what the translation of that rule is? There is to be no butt kissing in the church. That's Austin's translation. It's not allowed. There's to be no butt kissing in the church because your church is not where you come to be in control and told that you get to stay in control. No, church is where you come to learn how to be okay with not being in control. And that brings us back to this Easter story and what we're going to end with. Belief in the resurrection seems to be less a matter of knowledge and more a matter of control. Belief in the resurrection, it seems to be less a matter of knowledge and more a matter of control, by which I mean our beliefs are less determined by what is and isn't rational and more determined by our willingness to not be in control. And so these guards, you know, these poor guards, they were confronted with a terrible but very wonderful decision that first Easter morning. They could receive the resurrection or they could take the money. They could receive the resurrection and learn how to be okay with not being in control or they could take the money and stay in control. That was the decision. And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to get very judgmental of these guards. Really, do you walked away from the resurrection for some money? How stupid could you be? But I gotta be honest, I see a lot of myself in these guards. Anybody else? I've, I've taken the money before. And I could certainly do it again. And so all these Easter's later, man, here's Jesus once again confronting us, all of us, with this terrible but wonderful decision. You can stay in control or you can receive the good news of Easter. That's the choice. Because you can't do 
both. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you tonight and we are so grateful to be here. We do not deserve to be here. We do not deserve to exist. The breath in our lungs, every breath in, every breath out. And yet a couple thousand years ago, God, you took responsibility for us. You took responsibility for our shame and our selfishness and our lust and our apathy and our busyness. God, we name it and you have claimed it and gladly taken responsibility for it. You went down into the grave. You overcame sin, suffering, death, the devil. You were raised three days later and now all these Easter's later here you are confronting us just like you did those women and those guards 2,000 years ago with this terrible but wonderful decision because the good news of Easter demands that we either stop being in control or we cannot receive the good news of the resurrection that's much easier said than done It's fun to be in control. I I love being in control. I know a lot of us do. And so I pray that in these moments you would work on our hearts. Open up our hands to allow us to receive the good news of Easter. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.